Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat for just a moment. I want to share a few announcements, bring a few things to your attention today. First of all, if you are consider yourself to be a newcomer, we have a couple things that we want to share with you. The first is that next week there will be a Get to Know Us lunch. So that will be immediately after the service. That's a great opportunity to find out a little bit more about Creekside, what we believe, and uh, what the steps look like if you may be interested in membership. So if you are interested in that, take a look at your bulletin because all the information is in there, how you can RSVP uh, so that they can plan numbers for food. The next thing is just, you know, if, if you take a look at your bulletin, there's a flap at the back, uh, and that's an opportunity if you would like to, you can sign up for our weekly email that comes out so you can keep up on events. Um, if you'd like to share your, your name and any prayer requests, uh, we'd love to have a chance to get to know you a little bit better. So take a look at that. And then, you know, you look outside, you see the spring, spring weather, and that is just a great reminder that Easter is coming very soon. I think, I think it may be four weeks away till Easter. So every year we are excited to put on an Easter egg hunt for our neighboring community. There's always somewhere in the neighborhood of five to 6,000 plastic eggs with candy that we spread all across the lawn out there. And so we need a lot of help to, uh, to make everything happen. And there's a, there's a lot of opportunities to get involved. If, if you'd like to, you can uh, pick up some candy and some plastic eggs and just bring them one of the next uh, three Sunday mornings and, and look for the bins right out front in the entryway. Uh, so we need candy, we need eggs. To get all, those, all the candy into those eggs is a lot of work. And so the weekend before Easter, Saturday the 23rd, uh, you can sign up if you want to come be a person who helps put a lot of candy into those eggs. And finally, the day before Easter, Saturday, I believe it's the 30th, is when we will have the actual event. So we'll need lots of people just to come to be just a friendly face, to help tell people where they need to go, where they can park, where they line up when they get outside before the uh, egg hunt happens. So all these things. And this is also just a great opportunity to, uh, if you have neighbors that have young children, great chance to invite them uh, out to an event where we will uh, have a chance to hear a short gospel presentation and, you know, just help, help people understand what the reason is for Easter. So... Look out front, look for those sign-up sheets. If you have questions, Mike and Amy uh, are the people that you need to talk to. So I just want to read a verse uh, for us to, to think on and be encouraged with this morning. And this is from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And just a simple thought, but how, how amazing is it that people who are far from God, far because we, you know, as Paul's talking about there, we're not part of the, the Jewish family, um, far because they did not know about what God had done through the nation of Israel, and far really because they're separated from God by their sin. But now by the blood of Christ, all of us can be brought near uh, and to become part of God's family. And so it's just a thought to encourage you with as we continue our worship and singing this morning. So let's, let's stand and sing this next song.
Thank you, praise team. Just a couple of things I want to call to your attention. Uh, first of all, for the next week's newcomers get to know us lunch, that's for folks, you know, that are just, you're just curious. You want to know a little bit more about the church. You want to kind of understand uh, how our, our leadership structure is, what our doctrinal statement is. If you haven't looked at it online, it's just a great chance. It's good food, good time to get together. So it's really not a, uh, there's no high pressure sale. It's just we want to meet with you and get to know you and give you a chance to find out who we are. And uh, we just look forward to uh, having you here, here with us for that. I also have two other things. I don't really like doing announcements, but I have a couple things I really need to call your attention. One of our church family uh, has recently moved. Alfonso is in the back. Alfonso, just wave your hand there, brother. Alfonso, just, yeah, that's Alfonso. Okay, he's in need of a table and, uh, and uh, maybe a, a couple of uh, uh, chairs for his uh, new living room, okay, until he has a chance to get to the store. He's kind of getting his feet on the ground after just moving. So if you have anything you'd be able to help him out with, talk to him after the service. The next thing I want to call your attention to is that something in uh, last year we implemented as an elder team is that we're asking each of our elders to take a little sabbatical, okay? Uh, Because these guys are doing a lot of ministry activities not related to elder work, but then they're also uh, serving double duty doing elder work, uh, we've kind of put up a rotating basis in which one of the guys rotates off uh, for a a six-month period, or roughly a six-month period. And so Alan Krim, who's uh, leading worship here and who is currently one of our elders and will continue to be one of our elders, is going to be taking a sabbatical, okay, beginning in March and then through, through August. And the reason we do this is because we want to give them just a reprieve from their extra duties as an elder. So they just don't have to concern themselves with the elder responsibilities, which are, it can times be very, very heavy and, and, and a responsibility. So they can take a time away from that. They can also refresh themselves uh, with a little, maybe a little extra time or they're in busy stations of life, uh, spiritually, physically, emotionally, uh, reconnect with their families, reconnect with the Lord in, in ways they weren't able to do while they're spending extra time in, in uh, elder ministry. So... Uh, that's going to happen, and if you have any questions about that, please talk to me. I'd be glad to explain more if I can or add to the, what I've already said. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you so much for your grace in our lives, and uh, what a, a neat thing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Um, praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Holy Ghost. And I pray now, Lord, that you would guide our, our conversation around your word, our discussion, our uh, in investigation, and I pray that you would speak to our, each heart here, each heart that's listening online, each heart that's uh, here this morning, and I pray, Father, that we really would be able to, as we've been singing about rejoicing and, and giving thanks and praising you, that we really would praise you uh, for the neat truths that are revealed from your word uh, to us And we ask now that you give us insight by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. During college, I worked uh, on behalf of several different employers. And I worked on behalf of those employers for my benefit to make money for me and to make money for them. Okay? I mean, that's kind of how it works. Uh, If you're working for somebody, you want to make money. But if you aren't making money for them, then they can't afford to keep you on. 
so that's how, that's how that works. As we've been studying through the book of Romans, we've kind of uh, been working, especially in chapters 5 through 7, on looking at what God's been doing on our behalf. Okay? He's been working. And he's been working on our behalf to secure our freedom, our liberty, from sin and the law and its penalty. And now, as we turn to chapter 8, he concludes his discussion with regard to law and the sin and regarding that and kind of enters into a more tangible benefits of our justification, of our being made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And beginning in Romans 8, verses 1 through 11, which we're going to be looking at this morning, uh, he begins with the Holy Spirit's work. So God's been working, God the Father, and he's been working through Christ, and now we're going to see the Spirit of God's work in our life and on our behalf to reassure us of some things. He's going to reassure us of our victory over death. Okay? He's going to reassure us of our ability to live a godly life. He's going to reassure us of our identity as part of God's family. And he's going to reassure us of our immortality. And all of that for his glory. And so this morning in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, which all of Romans 8 is a rendition of the benefits that we have because of our justification. And particularly as it relates to the Spirit's work in us. The Spirit of God has been mentioned only briefly up to this point in seven chapters. And now in chapter 8, I think at least 28 times we have mention of the Holy Spirit. So it seems to me that there's a focus on the Spirit's work, and particularly in verses 1 through 11. And so in Romans 8, 1 through 11, uh, we discover three powerful ways that God's Spirit works for those who are in Christ. And these are encouraging, and they empower us to live uh, godly lives, and joyfully, and victoriously as as God's children. So I'm going to read the text, verses 1 through 11, Romans chapter 8. Hope you can follow along with me if you have your Bible, uh, your device underneath the chair. There should be a Bible if you uh, don't have one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak in the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your immortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. First powerful way that I see in the text that the Spirit of God works in our 
wives and on our behalf is that God's Spirit gives us freedom from sin's condemnation. And there's three facts in the text that I think confirm this. First of all, there is the proclamation of freedom. The text begins with a therefore. And as we've said before, when there's a therefore, you ask what it's there for. And the therefore looks back and it looks forward. And this therefore, in my opinion, in my understanding, introduces a very joyous conclusion to the previous discussion of God's glorious provision of justification which means we're made right with God, we're at peace with God, it means that there's no animosity, hostility of God towards us because of what Christ has done, and his glorious provision of that justification by faith. It's a conclusion of our justification by this glorious conclusion is what? There's no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation. Uh, typically, when we think of a condemnation, the condemnation is actually the verdict, okay? But here it means the penalty, and that's how we normally understand it. It's the penalty. So there is no penalty. Um, some of you are familiar with what's going on on the larger scale in, the, in America. Well, the for- former president, Donald Trump, has just been uh, condemned uh, in, the, in a court in New York, and the penalty he's been assessed is $355 million. That's in addition to another $85 million or something that he was assessed for some other thing. So that's the penalty. That's the condemnation as we would understand it. When technically condemnation is the verdict, guilty, but we're conflating the two together so that we understand that condemnation is actually the penalty, okay, what he's done. And so without exception, here's what the text says, without exception, There will be no penalty, no penalty of separation from God in eternal torment in hell. I'm going to say that again. There's absolutely, without exception, no condemnation, no penalty of eternal separation from God in eternal torment in hell for whom? text says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. In a vital union, now what does that mean? In vital union with Christ through our personal trust in Him and His work on our behalf. Go back to chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation. If you are here this morning and you are listening online, if you are personally putting your faith and your trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, there is no penalty of eternal separation from God that results in, 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 in torment and hell. Whew. Get out of jail free. Now, the promise that's given to us does not, it, it, it's, it's the most wonderful news. I mean, it's the most liberating news that we could ever be given uh, to be living outside, outside of the reach of God's wrath righteous wrath and judgment we were uh, with our children when they were younger at a zoo and I'm not sure which zoo it was at so it doesn't really matter but we were going through the gorilla exhibit okay and we went through the gorilla exhibit and there was this huge male gorilla facing the other way and we were inside this uh, enclosure and there was a plexiglass thing you know separating us from the gorilla and the gorillas, you know, was in there. I don't know, couldn't tell for sure, but probably they had a mirror thing. You could see him because he didn't really like people looking at him. 
So he's up there just doing his gorilla thing. And uh, I think it was our daughter, Janae, and she was kind of leaning up against the plexiglass. And all of a sudden, that gorilla whipped around and smashed against, I mean, both hands just wham, smashed as hard as he could against the plexiglass. And our daughter was just totally freaked out. But she was outside of the reach of his wrath. And the text is here that every child of God is outside of the reach of God's righteous wrath. And our freedom from condemnation, take this, is not permission. Okay, we've been delivered from the penalty, but it's not, it's not permission to indulge in corruption. We saw that in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that God's grace may abound even more? God forbid. Neither is it, neither is it a, a, an exemption from God's discipline. So you say, people say, oh yeah, so you just got your ticket to heaven and you're outside of God's wrath and it's no problem. You can do whatever you want. No, we can't do whatever we want. And if we do whatever we want, guess what? God's going to discipline us. That's Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, verse 6, I think, uh, do we have, uh, doesn't matter, you can write it down. Hebrews chapter 6, yeah, there it is. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he punishes every son whom he accepts. So there you go. So then we have the, not only the proclamation, but the provision of freedom. There are two reasons for our freedom. And the first is the, our justification. In verse 2, he says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free. The law of the spirit of life. It's the spirit of God that God uses and works to set us free. True followers of Christ are rescued from God's eternal judgment because, that's the four, because we're now under the authority. Now, I'm translating law as authority because law here, the law of the spirit of life, is not a commandment, not the commandment of the spirit, but it's an authority, okay? It's the authority of the Spirit, the authority of the life-giving Spirit. We're now under the authority of the life-giving Spirit, whom we receive from God, and through whom He liberated us from sin and death in Christ, when we put our faith or our trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, by virtue of our justification in Christ. We maintain that as man is justified by what? Faith, apart from the works of the law. So it's in our justification, we receive the Spirit, and the Spirit is the one who gives us liberation from sin and death by virtue of our justification. Under the Spirit's authority, under the Spirit's authority, believers never escape the pull of sin. Remember, that's last, that, that was last week? End of Romans chapter 7. Things I don't want to do, I do. Things I, uh, I do want to do, I don't do. And I end up doing the very thing I hate to do. So we're not outside of the pull, but we aren't enslaved to sin's power. And we will never experience sin's ultimate punishment. That's the joy and the blessing of being in Christ. As a child, I occasionally uh, didn't do, follow the rules. I didn't follow the rules of my home, okay? And I received the discipline of my parents. But I was never disowned by my parents. I was never disowned. As children of God, we will never be disowned. We will never be under the 
full wrath of God, even though he may discipline us for doing stupid stuff. Okay? Secondly, there's substitution. You read verse 3, 4, there's the other 4, because uh, believer's justification, whereby we're rescued from God's condemnation, our justification, which brings about our deliverance from condemnation, is because of Christ's substitution. That's the basis of That's the gospel. Okay? His, the law was powerless to save us from condemnation. It was powerless to save us from sin's mastery or its misery in the end, right? The mastery and the misery of death, which comes as a belt of sin. The law couldn't do it because it was, the text says, weak through the flesh. Not the law's flesh, our flesh. Because we have a sinful nature. Sinful human nature renders the law powerless to produce the righteousness which God requires to escape his condemnation. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 and uh, verse 21. For all who are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. And there is nobody who is able to abide by the book of the law and all that's written them. Verse 20. Uh, now, it uh, should be verse 21, so we'll skip that. All right? When the law was unable to do what, what the law was unable to do, rescue us, save us, for corrupt human beings, God did. What the law was able to do, God did. Or what the law was unable to do, God did. All right? By sending his son to earth, In the likeness of sinful flesh. Ooh, that's a key word. Look at there, uh, those four words. In, or the, in the likeness of sinful flesh. It's more than four words. In the likeness of sinful flesh is absolutely critical. Because here's the deal. It's chosen masterfully because it protects, as John Stott says, both Jesus' real humanity and sinlessness. Because he didn't say... In the inhuman sinfulness, he didn't say, he said, in the likeness of sinful flesh, not in the likeness of flesh. If he said the likeness of flesh, he wouldn't be fully human. If he said in sinful flesh and skipped the likeness, he would be depraved. And Jesus was neither part human or depraved, he was fully human. And sinless. And he had to be such. If I confuse you with that, you can ask me later. Okay, In the likeness of sinful flesh. Preserves, I'll state, start again. Jesus' real humanity and sin, sinlessness simultaneously. All right? You see, on the cross, uh, and, and we, we see uh, that it, it must be so. He had to be fully human. And yet sinless in order to serve as an acceptable offering for sin on behalf of corrupt human beings. Because if he wasn't a human being, then how could he be my sacrifice? And if he wasn't sinless, then he would have had to die for his own sins and not ours. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 uh, is, a, is a critical passage. It says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Not, not like sort of 
like the same, but the same. So that with the purpose, for this purpose, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. That's the marvelous, that's the gospel, folks. He took on sinful flesh so that he might die for our sins and offering for our, in our place as our substitute on the cross. He did it for us. You can write down, so on the cross he suffered the hostility of a holy God against all sin, breaking sin's grip on those who believe in him. Uh, if you're taking notes, you can write down Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. You can look that up uh, a little bit later. You see, and then it goes on, he says, at the end of this verse, he condemned sin in the flesh. So the sin that once condemned those who are now followers of Christ has been crushed. Its power is broken. Its penalty has been averted. And its permanent destruction is certain. He broke it for those who are in Christ. All right? That's the marvel of it. And finally, we see the purpose of freedom in verse 4. Verse 4, he says, in order that, this is the purpose statement. And some would say it's a result. I think it's more, uh, I think it's more about the purpose. But the freedom from sin's condemnation through Christ's redeeming sacrifice is for this very purpose. What purpose did he redeem us for? Through his sacrifice. The purpose of our ongoing and final sanctification. He says... In verse 4, in order the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In order to sanctify us. Ongoing sanctification and final sanctification. Which, that's a fancy $64 word for becoming like Jesus. Okay. We become like Jesus. Through what Christ has done for us on the, on, on the cross. Because Christ's offering for sin demolished its power, the text says, the requirement of the law, perfect obedience, okay, is able to be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Yeah, perfectly? No. We saw that in, he, he, or in Romans chapter 7. But the, the, the difference is believers are delivered from sin's control and its condemnation. And have a divine nature with a commitment and a capacity and a calling to live holy. So we're able to do what we were unable to do before we were in, in Christ. And that is to live holy lives. And that's our calling. You can write this down if you want, but 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Like the Holy One who called you, be yourselves holy in your behavior because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And so that's what we are, are, are aspiring to. That's what we're moving towards. And then he says, every genuine Christian does not walk according to the flesh. Okay, what does that mean? They do not walk or conduct ourselves or I think the ESV says live, which is, you know, we don't walk, we don't live or conduct a life according to or driven by the flesh, which is our sinful passions, priorities, and practices of our fallen nature inherited from Adam, which we saw back in Romans chapter 4 and 5. Okay, Romans 5, I guess it was. 
Okay? That's not where we walk. But we walk, we do walk, we do conduct our lives, and we do, as a way of life, walk according to or with a disposition of the Spirit. The Spirit of God. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, Paul says that we should walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. In verse 25 of Galatians chapter 5, he says, if we live by the Spirit, and in other words, if we are alive in the Spirit, then we should walk and follow the Spirit as well. If you're a child of God, you should live like one. It's kind of another way to say it. That's who we are. That's how we should live. God's Spirit indwells every believer and produces spiritual fruit. No fruit, no faith. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Now, it's a lot of other stuff that the Spirit of God works in our life. God's Spirit indwells every believer and produces the fruit within them. That's what God does. God's goal, get this, God's goal in recruiting us from sin is to see righteousness, the righteousness that we possess and the righteousness we profess practiced. God brought us into his family so that the righteousness we possess, the righteousness that we profess, is practiced in our lives. Uh, I told you before that uh, we attended uh, Victoria's uh, swearing-in ceremony as a U.S. citizen. And in that ceremony, that U.S. citizen ceremony, they commit to reflect in their lives the values of, as U.S. citizens. Guess what? If you're a child of God, you're a citizen of heaven. And we're supposed to reflect the values of heaven in our life. As new creatures in Christ, we're citizens of heaven, and we're supposed to live righteously like heavenly citizens. That's the, that's the first work of the Spirit. The second one is this. God's Spirit co- co- governs our minds. He governs our minds in verses uh, 5 through 8. And there's two competing consciences uh, and uh, consequences are highlighted. Uh, and actually, I say consciences because I'm focusing on the mind part, but there's actually two different individuals. In verse, in, in verse 5, he says, uh, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Paul contrasts two sorts of people. And these two sorts of people comprise all of humanity. I think that's important to understand. And those people comprise all of humanity to explain, he does this to explain why believers aren't living according to the flesh, aren't governed by our fallen natures. And here's the two people, two groups. Those who live, this is the ESV, which I think does a better job of translating it here. Those who live according to the flesh and have have their minds set on the flesh. Who are these people? If I ask you, who are the people who are living according to the flesh with their minds set on the flesh? What word would you use? One word. Sinners, but we're all sinners, kind of. Unbelievers. They're unredeemed people. They're, they're unregenerate people. Directed, dominated, and directed by their sinful nature. That's who they are. Okay? And they, they have their minds set on, on uh, their mindset, which means they're focusing their minds on the things of the flesh. They do what they dwell on. 
So what do they do? The things of the flesh. Okay, Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, uh, Paul said that whose end is destruction, he describes it in this way, whose God is their belly, actually, their gut, uh, their appetites, okay, and whose glory is in their shame and who have their minds on earthly things. These are the, the people that he's talking about. Uh, the person who took the lives of the police officers in Burnsville, Minnesota, did exactly what he was thinking about doing. If you heard or read any of the reports, he was thinking about taking the lives of these kinds of people. And that's exactly what he did. That's what the unsaved do. Then the second group is, but those who live as a determined lifestyle according to the Spirit. Well, if those who live according to the flesh, with the mindset in the flesh, are the unredeemed, dominated, and directed by their flesh, then who are the people who are living according to the Spirit and their mindset on the Spirit? Those are the people who are the children of God. They're God's children. They're forgiven, redeemed children of God. They set their minds consistently focusing on the things of the Spirit because their life's orientation and their mind's preoccupation is on the Spirit. And I ask myself, is that true for me? (laughs) My life's preoccupation and my mind's orientation is on the Spirit, on the Spirit's stuff. You know, on living out the fruit of the Spirit. That I have my mind set on love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That... I put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, have a complaint against one another, you know, forgive them just as God in Christ has forgiven me. Okay, but that's who we are supposed to be. That's who we are. Not only practicing what God delights in, but putting off what he despises. So living the Christian life is not just about only doing what God wants, it's not doing what he doesn't want, which is a challenge in itself. So Paul explains the corresponding condition of each mindset. So that's the mindsets. Now, what's the condition of those mindsets? Some would say it's the consequence. I think it's better to say the the condition of those mindsets. Uh, When we look at that, for the mindset on the flesh is what? It's a text A. The mindset on the flesh is death. So does the mindset on the flesh result in death? Well, yeah, it does. But I think the focus is more, as one commentator put it, an equation. The mindset on the flesh equals death. Spiritually dead person. The person who is mindset on the flesh is a spiritually dead person. Okay? They're, They're bent on evil intentions and actions where they're physically alive but spiritually dead. But Paul's emphasis is on the condition of spiritual death in which the unbeliever exists. He is the natural mind, receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he's unable to understand them. Spiritually dead. That's who he is. But in stark contrast to that is the person whose mind is set on the Spirit. The priorities and practices of God's Spirit. Okay, The mind set on the Spirit equals what? Life and peace eternal spiritual life and the peace of God and and peace with God they're a Christian the mindset on the spirit is 
a believer, if you will, okay? That's Galatians 6, the, the last part of Galatians 6. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. They are a believer, okay? Now, verses 7 and 8, the reason why the unsaved are spiritually dead, he goes into a long discussion of uh, these people who are spiritually dead. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, 7 and 8, because he's spiritually dead because the mindset in the flesh is hostile towards God hostile towards God because whether they are outwardly religious let's better say that again because whether they are outwardly religious right or openly rebellious they're hostile towards God the mindset on the flesh sometimes those people are religious people sometimes they sit in our churches they're outwardly religious but sometimes they're openly rebellious. Regardless, it doesn't matter. They are hostile towards God. They're the enemies of God. It's, uh, you read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But you were children of wrath, he says, before you, you came to Christ. They're hostile towards God. James 4.4 4, uh, describes them in, in, uh, in this way. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The unregenerate mind manifests its hostility towards God, I think Paul goes on to say, manifests it in that he's not subject to the law of God. He's unwilling to subject himself to the law of God. Um, John 3, 19, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And therefore they don't subject themselves to the law of God because when they come into the light, it exposes their evil. They don't like it. They're unwilling to subject themselves to the law of God. Um, there's a district attorney and a prosecuting uh, attorney in a high-profile case. They broke the law. This is national news, so I'm not, um, but I'm not going to go with it. They broke the they broke the God's law in that they committed adultery. They broke man's law in that they committed perjury. They did what unregenerate people do. They didn't submit to the law of God. They didn't submit to the law of men. A mind hostile to God is not only unwilling, but the text says unable to do any good. Because in their best efforts, as, as unregenerate persons say, well, can unbelievers be good? Uh, not really. According to God's standard. They can do some things that we might say are good, but because everything they do is tainted by their fallen human nature, it's ultimately selfish and self-serving. And so they can't really do anything good. In verse 8, Paul concludes it and he says that the unsaved are in the flesh. They're operating entirely under the control of their fallen nature and they cannot please God. If you're here this morning listening to this message or online and you are hostile towards God because you have never fully surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and trusted in what Jesus did on the cross, you are an enemy of God. You're unwilling to submit yourself to the word, word and Lord, Lord, word of God, and you are unable, and you cannot please God. Now, if you're okay with that, um, I feel sorry for you. I wouldn't want you to be that. I would want you to turn from your sins and trust in Christ and know that you are under no condemnation. There's one more way the Spirit works. The Spirit guarantees our inheritance, Okay? And there's two activities of the indwelling spirit that secure the believer's salvation. First, 
The indwelling spirit proves we are God's children. Notice uh, in verse 9, uh, I'm going to read it. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. The proclamation is given that the spirit indwells believers. Okay. That's what he's talking about. So he's been talking about, if you read the text, the previous few verses about those who are according to the flesh, whose mind is set on the flesh. Now notice the switch. However you. Now he's not talking about those people. He switches the focus, turns the focus back on those who are not in the flesh. They are not enslaved to their sinful passions. But in the Spirit. So in the Spirit is synonymous with according to the Spirit. Whose minds are set on the Spirit. So he's in the Spirit. As a genuine follower of Jesus, governed by the Spirit's priorities. Governed by the Spirit's practices. And I say governed because we've read chapter 7, right? And we're not always like we should be. But when we're not like we should be, the Spirit of God still convicts us of our sin and turns us back to Him. And so, he says, you're genuine, governed by His Spirit and practice. And then he gives the proof that the Spirit indwells only believers. Notice he says, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Interesting word, dwell. It comes from the root word of home. The Spirit takes up permanent residence. He takes up permanent residence, powerfully influencing every facet of our existence. If we're a child of God, that's the idea behind it. The indwelling presence of God's Spirit is the proof of our salvation. We went through Ephesians, right? It's the down payment, okay? Um, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, I think, says this. Uh, Because you are sons of God, sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Because you are sons, so you cannot be a son without the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you are a son or daughter. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, uh, Paul said, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? Therefore you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, is verse 20. The Spirit of God is in you. Proof that the Spirit, what's the proof? Okay, he said, well, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, how do I know if the Spirit of God dwells in me? Uh, I just have a couple of suggestions. Uh, First of all, I would say the proof of the Spirit uh, dwelling within you is you have faith in the promises of God. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. If you believed, the word of God says you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Spirit of God is in you, which Paul has just said, the Spirit of God is in you. So if you're trusting in Christ, then you believe that the Spirit of God is in you, based upon the word of God. That's one of the evidences that the Spirit of God is within you. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, Uh, John says this, by this we know that we remain in him and he is in us because he has given us his spirit. If we believe what God said, that he gives us the spirit when we put our trust in him, then we have the spirit because we're trusting in it. Second, fruit of the spirit's presence. Okay, 
And we've talked a little bit about this before. But the Spirit gives us power, what? To be His witnesses. The Spirit prompts us to do stuff that we wouldn't normally do. Step out in faith. So the, 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 the power to witness. The promptings that guide us. Perspectives of the Spirit of God within us. And also the practices of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5. You can also write this one down. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, you cannot confess that Jesus is Lord without the presence of the Spirit. And if you don't confess Jesus is Lord, guess what? No Spirit. But Ephesians chapter 5, verse uh, verse 18, says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, what's the evidence of being filled with the Spirit? Verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart towards the Lord. So if there's no speaking to one another with truth of God's word, uh, joy in our heart, or speaking to one another and, and, and sharing that, well, that, that's not filled with the Spirit. You may have the Spirit, but you're not filled with the Spirit. So there's, there's fruit that comes from it. If you're a member of the state basketball team playing at, at Wells Fargo Arena, we know you're a member of the team because you all wear the same uniform guess what? Every child of God has the same spirit. That's how we know you're on the team, that we're on the team, is we have the same spirit. Conversely, you know, if you have the spirit, you're in, in the family. If you don't have the spirit, guess what? You're out. You're not part of the family. That's what he's saying. If, we, if anyone does not have the spirit, now notice the switch. The spirit of Christ. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, then you're one of the family. But if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, so the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ is the same thing. It's God's Spirit dwelling within you. It's the manifestation of God, uh, the the Son's dwelling within us is through His Spirit. And that's evidenced by the absence of attitudes and actions that are the Spirit's. He belongs, He does not belong to Him. Then secondly, We see the indwelling spirit provides life. Not only does the indwelling spirit prove we're his children, but it provides life to God's children. The spirit gives life to our spirit. Now, this is a switch from the ESV. So if you're reading the ESV or whatever, uh, it has the the spirit capitalized. Okay, so just note here, I'm deviating from that. You don't have to agree with it, but I'll try to explain why I'm I'm doing that. Okay. If if Christ is in you, now how do we know if Christ's in us? Because his spirit's in us. By virtue of God's indwelling spirit, okay, that's Galatians 4, that's what he just said in chapter 8, verse 9, though the earthly physical body is, the earthly physical body is what? Dead. If Christ is in you by the indwelling spirit, though the earthly body that we inhabit is all but dead because of the detrimental I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 10. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead, if Christ is in you, even though my physical body is dead because of sin, how is that possible? Our body's going to die because that's part of what it means to be a human being. It's not because of sin. It it is because of sin, sin tainting humanity so that our, our physical bodies die. Though the earthly physical body we inhabit is all but dead because of the detrimental effects of sin in our fallen world, yet the spirit in us, 
our, our spirit, not God's spirit, our spirit is alive because of righteousness. What righteousness? The righteousness we have received from God by grace through faith. That spirit is alive. So our physical bodies are going to die, and they're actually dead. He says they're dead now, even though we haven't physically died. We're, they're, they're dead. Even though we're in Christ, physical body's going to die. You, you've been to a funeral. That's proof, right? But our spirit's alive. Our spirit's alive. And, 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 and we, that we possess through our union with Christ. Secondly, the spirit gives life to our mortal bodies. Interesting. Then he goes on in... Uh, in verse 11, and he says, but if the spirit of him, uh, oh yeah, and the spirit is alive, yet the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal body. Okay? But if the spirit that raised Jesus, well, what's that? Conquered. He conquered sin and death. That's the conquering power of the spirit of God within us. Liberating presence of God's spirit demonstrates his power by raising people from God uh, Jesus from the dead and the spirit's power dwells within everyone who truly trusts for salvation do you believe that that the spirit of God lives within you and that power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you that's what he said in chapter six that we might walk in newness of life been raised together with him giving life to his mortal body he will, by the Spirit indwelling within believers, give spiritual life to our mortal bodies. Because of the Spirit, He'll give life to our mortal bodies. And I believe that's now and in eternity. So that we can live now in newness of life that He promised back in Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. But eventually, our mortal bodies are going to be raised up to receive a new body. And we'll get life. And so all of it is according to His glory and for His glory. So if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're hostile towards God. You're unable to submit yourself and unwilling to submit yourself to the law of God, and you are condemned to an eternity apart from God. That's not a place I want you to be. But that's where God's Word says you are. And so I plead with you, repent of your sins, trust in Christ, and receive forgiveness so that you are a child of God. Free from this condemnation. And if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Rejoice. Rest assured, you're not going to be condemned. Not an excuse to sin, not an exemption from discipline, but you are free. Remember that He set us free so that we can live for Him and live holy lives. That's what he did. He set us free. And, our, and we need to set our mind on the things of the Spirit. Focusing on what's the practices and priorities of the Spirit. And finally, rejoice that the Spirit who raised him dwells within us to give us new life now and in eternity. And what better way to remind ourselves of it than to take the bread and the cup, which is the reminder of the basis by which we are redeemed and by which we have no more condemnation through what Christ has done God provided for our freedom by sending his son as a sacrifice for sin so that all who believe could be rescued from condemnation take these symbols as a reminder of it reflect and give gratitude to Christ 
for what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, uh, I thank you for this glorious passage of Scripture. It reminds us there is no condemnation, but also that we are your children, that we're members of the family, and that we have the indwelling spirit and capacity and calling to live holy lives for you. So help us to do it according to your will and by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. From my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a ransom, he faithfully bore. He canceled my debt and he called me his friend. When death was arrested, my life began. Oh, your grace so free washes over.